welcome everyone. And um, this is Richard Mollett with the Long-Term Care Community Coalition. Today's program is going to focus on identifying and addressing nursing home abuse and neglect. So a little bit about the Long-Term Care Coalition. Those of you who have been with us before, we always give a little start to the coalition and a little bit about the background on the nursing home rules because I think it's just worth stating. Uh, LTCCC, uh, Long-Term Care Community Coalition again, we are a nonprofit organization entirely dedicated to improving care and quality of life for elderly and adult disabled people in long-term care, uh, particularly in nursing homes and assisted living. We are also very proud to be the home to two local long-term care ombudsman programs in New York, the Hudson Valley Program and the Tri-County Long-Term Care Ombudsman Program. Our focus as an organization is on policy analysis and systems advocacy in uh, both New York State and nationally. And in addition to that, we uh, more and more over the past 10 years have been doing work to educate consumers and families, long-term care ombudsmen, uh, and others who work with residents and their families. Speaking today, first will be Eric Goldwine. Eric joined us actually a year ago this month, right around this, this day. Um, he was our policy fellow, and Eric has stayed on, um, or I guess got promoted about two months ago to our policy and communications director. And I made a mistake there. He hasn't been with us since 2005. I have been. Uh, so pardon me for that. And I'm Richard Mala, of course. I joined LTCCC in 2002, and I've been the executive director since 2005. Uh, our website is nursinghome411.org. We'll mention that again. Uh, those of you who have been on our programs before know that um, they tend to be very content heavy. I, I guess I have a lot to say, but uh, there's no reason to take a lot of notes, no reason to worry about remembering anything. Everything that we have, everything that we talk about is available for free um, in resources, in a copy of this uh, presentation of the PowerPoint on, uh, as a webinar program on our YouTube channel and as a podcast in our growing podcast channels, so um, which are available on Spotify and Google Play and Apple Podcasts as well. So uh, nursinghome411.org is the place to go to access any of this. But today we're going to be doing, as, we, as we've been doing for the past couple of months, we're going to give, uh, Eric is going to give actually an update on COVID-19 in long-term care facilities. Uh, and then I'll be taking um, over the reins again, and I'm going to do a brief background, as I mentioned before, that we generally do on how the nursing home system works, uh, which I think is, uh, you know, always important, but even more important now for us to have a good grounding of what we can and can't expect at this time. And then the focus will be on requirements for ensuring that residents are protected from abuse and neglect with a, um, uh, you know, in particular, thinking about you know, what's going on for residents, what's going on in facilities at this time. Uh, everything that we talk about today will be focused on nursing homes in terms of the rules and regulations. However, I just want to you know, plug in that uh, you know, even though the regulations for and the requirements for assisted living and other adult care facilities tend to be much weaker. There are no state, excuse me, there are no federal uh, assisted living requirements, for instance. The standards of care, um, what we talk about when we talk about abuse and neglect, are, are really general. 
Um, they're things that we would not accept and should not accept, uh, whether it be in a nursing home, an assisted living, or someone's own, own home. As many of you know, yesterday was World Elder Abuse Awareness Day. I think Eric's going to be talking a little bit about that. But we're all particularly cognizant that um, elder abuse is a growing issue in any setting. So without further ado, I'm going to hand it over to Eric. Hi, all. Uh, oh, great. There you are. Okay. All can right. You, Sorry can about you that. The, no, not at all. A moment with a Zoom yeah. with pre-conference call. There's always uh, some sort of tech glitch. Uh, but I'm glad to have, uh, I think there's 190 of you waiting patiently uh, for us, and I'm grateful for you to be here. And it's fitting that, uh, that this uh, presentation is, and perhaps not coincidental, that we're holding this the day after World uh, Elderness uh, Abuse Awareness Day. And if you could, uh, Richard, can you go to the next slide? Um, yeah, so it's, it's fitting that, and that we're holding this webinar today. Uh, uh, LTCCC commemorates this day every year, but it's of paramount importance this year given uh, the devastating, absolved, uh, devastating tolls absorbed by residents during the pandemic, many of which we are not even seeing. Um, but uh, but a as with every year, uh, elder abuse is a public health problem. Uh, each year, 5 million older Americans experience abuse, neglect, or exploitation in nursing homes, or yeah, n sorry, not in nursing homes, but in nursing homes that is a, uh, where residents are especially vulnerable. Uh, we see uh, many disturbing reports of abuse, and much of this happens in silence. Uh, a uh, 2019 report found that nursing homes fail to report 84% of potential abuse and neglect incidents to state survey agencies. And, uh, with and during this pandemic with reduced and in some cases non-existent oversight, we're hearing of harrowing incidents involving neglect, isolation, physical abuse, sexual abuse, uh, financial exploitation, and emotional and psychological abuse. Um, we're, hearing reports of residents being forced to hand over stimulus checks. We're hearing about deprivation of food and water. And uh, during uh, World Elder Abuse Awareness Day, it's important that we, uh, we give attention to this and that we give residents a voice. And that's kind of our theme this year. So you can help us first by, you've already uh, uh, contributed just by being here and listening to this webinar, uh, which focuses on abuse and neglect. But you can also help by reporting or learning how to report suspected cases to appropriate agencies, writing to legislators about the urgent need to improve nursing home care. Uh, and you can do that using the LTCCC Action Center. And you can advocate for the restoration of residents' visitation rights, which I'll, uh, on our next slide, I'll explain more about what that is. So apologies for the amateur photoshopping here. Um, <laughs> but uh, over the last several months during the pandemic, uh, residents have been robbed of an essential right to visitation. And while there is justification uh, as far as 
preventing exposure to coronavirus, there is also a need to treat visitation not just as uh, guests and friends of residents, but as essential care. So we, uh, or last week, we launched a blueprint to let our people in and, of course, do so safely. Uh, you, on the right, uh, you can see our PPE equipment. This uh, gentleman right here should be wearing a mask and would be optimally be wearing a mask uh, if following our blueprint. And if you could go to the next slide, please. So visitation, as mentioned before, has numerous benefits to residents. It's not just that they get to see their friend. Um, it's, it's that visitors provide, are, uh, are vital to the health and well-being of residents. They provide social connection and support, and they also uh, provide monitoring and care in a setting so sorely lacking in these areas. Uh, during COVID-19, we're hearing all sorts of reports, as mentioned before, but it's also what we're not hearing that that bothers us and uh, demonstrates the need for in-person visitors. Um, so visitation is being restricted. There's limited, in some cases, non-existent oversight, and it's leading to neglect, substandard care, loneliness, and broken hearts. So in our blueprint, which you can read in full, uh, uh, using the link at the bottom right of this uh, of this page, and, it, and credit goes to the California Advocates for Nursing Home Reform Support Person Visitor Policy, uh, of which this was largely based. Uh, we are calling for a support visitor in person for each resident. So every resident should have the right to designate an SVIP. And we are also calling for safe and safe policies and practices with reasonable accommodations. These include but are, are not limited to a reasonable number of visitation hours, scheduling, transparency, infection control precautions, and indoor and outdoor visitation. So we want safety, we want reasonable accommodations, and we want uh, we want these residents to have access to their loved ones in a reasonable way that does not jeopardize the health of, uh, of them or of their fellow residents. Next slide, please. So uh, moving on to the data portion of this, uh, of, uh, this discussion. Uh, last week, or I guess this was two weeks ago, CMS uh, released facility and state level data uh, from 88% of the nation's 15,000 nursing home facilities. And there's going to be another update uh, expected, uh, they said in two weeks. So that should be uh, later this week. And then after that, it'll be updated weekly. Uh, and I write preliminary and I can't emphasize enough the uh, preliminary nature and also problematic nature of some of this data uh, from what we're already seeing. And we have done some digging into the numbers, um, but there, uh, but we'll continue to do that. And 
learn more about what's happening. But from what we have see, seen and also from what uh, CMS states is that there's fluctuations as facilities are given the opportunity to submit and correct data. Uh, more troubling is that we're seeing submission errors. Uh, there's, if you're, there's been several news reports uh, about some of the outlier data points. At a 90-bed New Jersey facility, there were 753 reported fatalities. And while we are, will be the first person, the first uh, group to note um, when there is substandard care, uh, 753 fatalities with 90 beds is not an accurate number. Uh, similarly, at a Chicago facility, uh, they had they reported 1,100 confirmed cases at a hundred uh, at a hundred bed facility. So, but but this data does include important information, and um, our hope is that as in these future updates, it'll be more complete with less submission errors. And on the next uh, slide, I'll go over some of the information that it does include and the summary findings. So. Uh, the preliminary data include, but then among other things, uh, confirmed and suspected COVID cases among resident and staff, fatalities, uh, these are both COVID and total, uh, staffing shortages as identified the provi provider. This is something that we'll be exploring further, uh, which facilities are identifying uh, staffing shortages, um, whether this is any uh, effect or uh, association with uh, with prevalence of COVID cases and with uh, COVID fatalities. And there's also PPE data, including uh, whether facility has sufficient N95 masks, gloves, hand sanitizer. And just to get back to what I was saying before about the data and its limitations. Uh, our summary data finds that there, there have been, or the CMS summary data uh, finds that there have been 60,000 cases and 26,000 resident COVID deaths. However, the, this um, varies uh, significantly from what reports we're seeing elsewhere, including Kaiser Family Foundation, which, uh, which registered 230,000 cases and 46,000 COVID deaths, granted among residents and staff, but these numbers do not um, align. So we'll be following that closely and continuing to update that on our site at our Coronavirus Resource Center, which I'll give a, on the next slides, I'll give a, a quick tour about the resources available um, on our website. Uh, so if you can you go to the next slide, please. Sure. Right. And this is just a, a back to the federal data. What we've done is we've transformed the data provided by CMS into an Excel-friendly file where you can sort facilities by state, by city, by county. You can look up how a certain facility is doing as far as fatalities, as far as cases, and you can play around with the data in a more user-friendly file. And next slide, please. Great, so all of this is available on our Coronavirus Resource Center, which you can find by going to our website, nursinghome411.org, and there's in giant purple letters 
Uh, it says click here to access the Coronavirus Resource Center. And what we've done is we've broken this into four sections, which you can access by clicking on the tabs, uh, the tabs on the top here. So there's COVID-19 resources, data, news and reports, federal guidance and requirements. And uh, I'll spend the next couple minutes just uh, giving a brief overview of what each, uh, each section has to offer. And next slide, please. So on our resource uh, center, this includes fact sheets, including infection control, uh, including fact sheets on the CARES Act um, and stimulus checks. Uh, there's an excellent fact sheet by the Center for Elder Law and Justice that we've shared on our resource center. Uh, we are also posting uh, LTCCC's nursing home 411 podcast. Our most recent episode was about the perils of privatization with uh, Dr. Charlene Harrington. Uh, and a couple weeks ago, uh, I chatted with uh, Richard about the hidden costs of COVID-19 with, uh, with Richard. And what these are, these are 20 to 30 minute less formal uh, interviews and discussions that that we hope can bring attention and information to these issues in a way that's uh, easy on the ear. So we'll be continuing to post these and we'll also be converting these webinars into podcasts. And on that note, uh, our webinars are also in the Coronavirus Resource Center, including today's on abuse and neglect and our previous webinars on uh, advocating for residents with dementia and nursing home ownership evaluation. And our next section um, is our data center, which I touched on briefly before. Our newest data resources involve facility and state level data from CMS. And again, uh, this data has its limitations, so take it with a grain of salt. Uh, on the more local level, we're posting uh, New York COVID fatalities at the facility and county level. And we're also posting our regular staffing information and other uh, infection control and citation information and other provider info. And on our next slide, uh, we're, uh, we, and again, these are materials that I discussed previously. We're posting uh, other news and reports uh, for example, our report on our blueprint for restoring visitation rights, uh, a report from last month on LTCCC's emergency action plan for New York State. Um, there's, we've posted the link to Richard's op-ed in the New York Times, uh, nursing homes were a disaster waiting to happen and our infection control issue alert. And our last section of the uh, Coronavirus Resource Center is our federal guidance and requirements, and these are linking to CMS, various CMS and CDC resources, such as reopening recommendations, such as their recent survey and enforcement memo, and other um, toolkits and fact sheets. So thank you uh, for uh, for your time here and. I, I, I suggest you visit our resource center and you can let us know if you have any questions about our materials. Uh, I'm at eric at LTCC 
www.ncc.org. And I'm going to hand it back to Richard. Thanks, Eric. Thanks very much. So, and, and just to, to, I think I'm echoing. So, um, maybe uh, it might be to Eric. Sorry, though. So, hopefully, oh, there we go. That should be good. Um, so, again, uh, you know, thanks very much, Eric. I just wanted to quickly mention, uh, you know, as Eric was saying, we have a variety of, of information on the Coronavirus Resource Center page, and we are constantly, you know, working to improvement as things have prove it, excuse me, as things have moved along. So the federal guidance and requirements, Eric and I just started, you know, we had posted some materials from, uh, from CMS and some of the state materials as well. And so we decided to do something a little bit more robust here, but also uh, understanding that a lot of this is, can be a little bit difficult to understand and it's changing as well. Uh, there are links to the latest information from the CDC um, and from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, um, on that website. Uh, it is a uh, complex issue, but we're trying to, you know, through, through these webinars and through the shorter pieces that we put out and work that we're doing in collaboration with the Consumer Voice and Center for Medicare Advocacy and Justice and Aging to get out, uh, you know, information that is as clear and as useful as possible. Uh, part of the problem, as you can see here with the different types of information, is that you have the um, CMS gave recommendations, which really don't carry the weight of requirements. They also did do some requirements, and they've also done some guidance, which is uh, a little bit more weighty than a recommendation, but a little bit less um, enforceable say than a, an actual requirement. So sorry for the confusion there. Um, we do try to clarify that wherever we think it's useful in our own materials, but um, we want the people to have access to the source materials as well. So you know, as always, that's just not our opinion. Uh, there is actual um, you know, resources that are backing it up. So I'm going to get on talking about, again, abuse and neglect today. A little bit of a background on the nursing home system. I'm sorry, I know some of you have seen this before, but essentially, you know, how do we come in? How do we have rules and regulations, safety standards for nursing homes? It comes from nursing homes which participate, uh, which, in other words, take money from Medicaid and/or Medicare. And the vast majority of nursing homes in this country take um, at least some money from Medicaid and/or the Medicare um, systems. Generally, uh, most nursing homes take both. Um, and in order for them to do so, they need to, um, they agree to, excuse me, to meet all the standards provided for in the nursing home reform law, which was passed in 1987. Now, states can have additional protections than what are provided for in the federal rules and standards, but no state can have less protections. So, for instance, uh, now there's um, about 35 or 36 states have minimum staffing requirements. They have a numerical um, minimum, meaning that you have to have a certain number of CNAs, uh, LPNs, and RNs per resident per day uh, for the people who are living in your facility. But not all states have that, and that's not a federal requirement. Importantly, uh, as I note here in orange, the federal protections are for every single resident in the facility, no matter who pays for your care. So everything we talk about, all the materials are on our website in respect to Residents' rights, right to choice, right to, to um, privacy, right to decent food, right to be treated with dignity. That doesn't matter if, you are, if your care is paid for through Medicare 
or through Medicaid or private pay, uh, insurance, et cetera. It does not matter as far as the rules are concerned. Again, uh, when a nursing home agrees to participate in the system uh, of Medicare and Medicaid, they agree to provide the, these protections for every single resident in the facility. Lastly, the federal agency, as we mentioned a couple of times now, CMS, the Centers for, for Medicaid Services, they um, contract with the states, usually it's the State Department of Health or Department of Public Health, um, to do the oversight to make sure that residents are protected and receive the care and the services that they need. Uh, a little bit about the reform law, one of my favorite laws. Um, the law requires that every resident is provided care and quality of life services that he or she needs to attain and maintain their highest practicable physical, emotional, and social well-being. Uh, we talk about this a lot because I think it's, it's so important. Uh, nursing homes aren't making widgets. They're not, they're not storing cars. Um, they're, not, uh, you know, they're not manufacturing or processing oil. They are dealing with individuals, and they get paid between 200 or so and $800 per day, depending upon that resident's needs, to provide services that are tailored for that individual. Again, it's not a warehouse. It's something that facilities are agreeing to provide a professional level of care. Uh, and that care has to be individualized, excuse me, uh, centered on the resident. And again, it's all predicated on how, how do we help that resident? What does that resident need to meet or, or to me, excuse me, his or her highest practicable physical, emotional, and social well-being. So what does that mean? It doesn't mean that me, I'm a 57-year-old, I'm going to run a four or five or six or even 10-minute mile. That's not happening. But if I wind up in a nursing home and I, could, I can go to the bathroom with help, I should not be placed in a diaper. That is a violation of my rights. And too often we accept that. And let me just say as an aside, I know I've been a family member. We've worked with family members closely for many years now. I know that that is hard. I know, and especially now with COVID-19, uh, where um, you know facilities are claiming that they're under more stress. We don't get to see them. No one is really going in, as Eric said. Uh, however, um, so I know it's challenging. I know it's upsetting as a family member to think that these are your residents' rights and those rights are not being achieved. Uh, however, if we don't know what our rights are, um, I feel uh, there's no way that they're ever going to be implemented in the lives of our residents. There's no way that they're ever going to be achieved. So yes, these are challenging, very, very challenging, especially now issues, but it's really important for us to know what our rights are, both to work with the uh, individuals, the caregivers in the facility, and to work to hold the administrators and the owners accountable for having enough uh, staff, for making sure that their staff have the um, uh, have sufficient knowledge and expertise um, and commitment to helping residents to meet those needs. So I'm going to talk specifically now about the requirements regarding abuse, neglect, and exploitation. So why are we talking about these requirements? Number one, right in the top middle here, is that there's an NBC News article, and we've seen so many of these elder abuse going unreported because of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, as Eric said, underreporting of abuse and neglect 
by nursing homes is a very serious and very widespread problem um, that has existed for years well before the coronavirus. Like so many other things, um, what has happened here is that the long-standing issues have just been greatly exacerbated over the last three months. And, um, and, and our, our residents, frankly, have paid the price for that. And as I've told a number of, pe number of people, uh, I was actually on a program just before I joined our program today. The uh, New Jersey uh, Assembly is holding a hearing, and the ombudsman for New Jersey spoke very eloquently about the, um, the cases of what they're hearing from families about and from residents about uh, just abject uh, abuse and, and neglect. Uh, especially neglect going on in facilities there. That's certainly what we're hearing in our home state of New York and what I'm hearing from people around the country and in news reports from, again, around the country is that, yes, COVID-19 is a very serious problem. Uh, it's a very, um, uh, could be, you know, most deadly for people who are older adults who are medically fragile, as most nursing home residents are. However, it's increasingly the the utter neglect that we're hearing about that is such a big concern during the pandemic. And that's one reason why, even though we had scheduled this program before, for this topic, I should say, before the pandemic, that I just wanted to plug in, you know, all of the rights that we talk about in terms of being free from abuse and neglect, um, all the residents' rights with just a couple of exceptions uh, are still in place during this time period. And the fact that we have let nursing home residents suffered to the extent that they've had, that they, they have suffered and have uh, not gone into nursing homes either on the state or the federal level to ensure that nursing homes are safe is, uh, as far as I'm concerned, really criminal and, um, and despicable. So we want to again kind of, kind of grab back some of this and say, you know what, these, these are the rights and these rights still exist now. There was not a holiday. Um, in terms of freedom from abuse and neglect. There was not a holiday in terms of right to live with dignity. Those things are still going on. Uh, just very quickly, the, you know, the few areas in which CMS um, did relax the rules was around transfer and discharge. Um, you know, we have seen abuses there. We'll probably talk about that more in our next program, which is going to be in July focused on a COVID-19 update and digging a little bit deeper into the COVID-19 issues. But for now, you know, the, the, there, there was a, um, they did weaken the rules around having to give people 30 days notice during this time period. They also weakened the rules. This is important just to plug in with you all on. They weakened rules in terms of staff proficiency. Uh, so for instance, uh, as you may have heard about in hospitals, uh, doctors, uh, people who are graduating from medical school or from nursing school, have been allowed to practice in hospitals as well as in nursing homes over the last several months. Even more critically, I think, from our, you know, from our perspective, is as I think most of you know, 90% of care that residents receive is provided by nurse aides. And normally, excuse me, nurse aides have to have under the federal rules at least 75 hours of certified training. Most states um, now, I believe most states, call for a higher minimum amount of staffing in order to be certified. What CMS has said is that during the, the coronavirus emergency, which can go on, it could end tomorrow, could go on for many months or, or, or even longer, uh, they have said that someone could come in with a, without having 
undertaken that certification, um, but just doing some other kind of training and be acting as certified nurse aides. And what we're seeing uh, quite frequently is about an eight-hour training. So rather than having a minimum of 75 hours of training, and as I said, some states are requiring 100, 125, 150. Um, the unions, I, I think their training last I looked, were well over, over that amount to make sure that people who are providing the care to residents are able to do that and have the, you know, some basic proficiencies. Right now, it could be as little as eight hours. So that's something, of course, we're concerned about that. It's not a long-term, um, uh, it's, it's not something that we would accept in the long-term at all, uh, but I want you to be aware of those, those are two of the few areas in which the rules have been temporarily relaxed in terms of the resi you know, resident care standards. But everything we talk about today, everything else that's on our website, again, in, in um, respect to dignity, in respect to toileting, in respect to, we'll talk about today, abuse and neglect, still in existence, and if there are violations going on of these rules, these requirements are not being met, then we have a right to advocate for them now. And if we don't start speaking out, uh, again, we're just not going to see that change, I'm afraid. So as we often do here on this slide, uh, we're looking at the federal requirements for freedom from abuse, neglect, and exploitation. Uh, as those of you who are familiar with our work know, we always try to cite to the Code of Federal Regulations at the CFR. So people say, you know, people can understand that these things are just not my opinion, they're not LTCCC's position, but actually they exist in the federal rules and you can go back and cite to them if anyone questions, um, you know, any of our materials or anything that we've told you. The F600 number here, that's the F tag and we put these on all of our fact sheets. Um, as I hope you all know, we have a lot of fact sheets in the Learning Center on our website, nursinghome411.org. They're all free um, to use and to share and to print out, et cetera. But we include the F number, the F600 here. It's called the F tag because that's the number if your facility was cited for failing to meet the standard, the deficiency statement, which would be available at the nursing home where you can find online, would say F600. And so that, inf that number is really important and helpful because you can, when you, if you ever look at the deficiency statement for your facility or facilities in your community, you can then trace it back to here, what was the requirement that they violated and what is the standard of care. As we note here in the second paragraph, what was the intent of the requirement? And that's CMS's language, not mine, meaning what do we expect to see when a facility is um, is meeting that requirement or what might be absent, what might be an indicator that they're not meeting that requirement. So that was just a little bit of background. Everything that's in italics is taken directly from the federal rules or from the federal guidance. Uh, and again, everything we talk about here is federal. There might be additional state rules, but really uh, most states abide by the federal rules. That is the backbone of for nursing home care and safety in our country. I just want to lastly say that in the following slide, some of the, there'll be some bold in, in the italicized text. That was a my bold. I just wanted to highlight them for us, but they aren't bold from CMS. But again, everything in italics comes directly from the federal rules or from the federal guidance. So here I'll just very quickly read, the resident has the right to be free from abuse, neglect, misappropriation of resident property and exploitation this includes, but is not limited to, freedom from corporal punishment, involuntary seclusion, and any physical or chemical restraint not required 
to treat the resident's medical symptoms. I just want to take a moment, moment here and say we're hearing, uh, as I said, a lot of neglect, but we're also hearing a lot of reports of misappropriation of resident property as residents are moved around either within the facility or uh, even from one facility to another at this time when we've heard some terrible stories there um, about residents being moved without families knowing about it, without the resident even being told at all in advance, uh, sometimes moved very far away from their, from their nursing home and from their community, uh, which is just um, completely inappropriate, something we urge you to speak to your ombudsman program or, or local legal services about if you encounter it. But, um, here, the misappropriation of resident property when those things are going on is something that we're hearing more and more of, that, that teeth are lost, hearing aids are lost, radios are lost, clothing is lost. It is absolutely outrageous. Um, again, nursing homes should not be shuffling around residents as if they're things that they're storing in a warehouse. Uh, this is not an Amazon facility where you're moving things around and getting them out the door. Uh, these are residents and these are human beings for which nursing homes, again, are paid a substantial amount of money to provide safety and care and to be treated humanely. So it is, they are entirely responsible, excuse me, uh, for ensuring that the resident's property is not misappropriated, not stolen, not thrown out, et cetera. That is their responsibility um, for the residents in their facility. That's what they are paid to do. The intent of the federal regulation, federal requirement here, excuse me, is that each resident has the right to be free from abuse, neglect, and corporal punishment of any type by anyone. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. So here I wanted to give, again, these are the federal um, guidance um, explaining what the feds do is they explain how they expect to see the requirement implemented in the lives of residents. So here are some key elements of noncompliance, noncompliance excuse me, for abuse and neglect. Uh, if the facility has failed to protect the resident's rights to be free from any type of abuse, including corporal punishment and neglect, that results in or has a likelihood to result in physical harm, pain, or mental anguish of that individual. If the facility has failed to ensure that a resident was free from neglect when it failed to provide the required structures and processes in order to meet the needs of one or more residents. Uh, so I want to give a little bit of uh, definitions about this. Some of the confusion, I think, or at least some of the claims as to why there hasn't been more enforcement of uh, freedom from abuse and neglect is that there is a lack of, uh, or, or providers and the states and CMS claim that there's a lack of clear definitions. And we did some research on this last year, and that's actually not true. I mean, um, what the rule is, you know, according to CMS, is that it's based upon what might be a crime, for instance, in the jurisdiction, in the state or in the county or in the city where the facility is located. However, we have some pretty basic definitions in, in what's called our common law, which is what we inherited from England and which we still use uh, in virtually every state and nationwide. Uh, is you know, of what abuse is, what neglect is, what assault is, what battery is, etc. Those are, are pretty clear and pretty basic. Uh, so I just wanted to quickly see, uh, mention here: you know, abuse is the willful infliction of injury, unreasonable confinement, intimidation, or punishment, with resulting physical harm, pain, or mental anguish. 
It also includes the deprivation so, uh, by any individual, including a caretaker, of goods or services necessary to attain or maintain physical, mental, and psychosocial well-being. It includes, as I note here in bold, verbal abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, and mental abuse, including abuse facilitated or enabled through the use of technology. And the reason why I think that's included here and why I included it is because we have unfortunately heard of reports in recent years of uh, nurse aides generally, uh, usually it's not the nurse, the professional nurses, but the nurse aides who are taking pictures of residents, sometimes taking pictures of their genitals, sometimes taking pictures of residents who are sitting in, say, you know, a bowel movement or something like that, embarrassing pictures and then posting them on Snapchat and other things. And that is, again, a form of abuse. Uh, let's talk a little bit about neglect here, sexual abuse, uh, what it means to be willful, and I'll talk a little bit about those more specifically in the following slides. So just to be very clear, the facility is responsible for providing a safe resident environment and protecting residents from all these kinds of abuse. Um, some characteristics that are associated with an increased risk of abuse, I thought these were useful to put in because it tells you not only what the CMS is expecting the state surveyors to look at, but also what we should be looking at as ombudsmen, as advocates, as family members, et cetera. These are things that we might be seeing that are indicators that there is a strong potential that there is an abusive situation in the facility. Uh, that includes unsympathetic or negative attitudes by staff towards residents. It could be care staff. It could also be administrative staff. If you see chronic staffing problems, again, this is not my opinion. This is language that's coming from the federal guidance. Uh, a lack of administrative oversight, staff burnout, stressful working conditions, um, poor or inadequate preparation or training for the caregiving staff in respect to their responsibilities to care for their residents, um, deficiencies in the physical environment, and facility policies that operate in the interest of the facility rather than of the residents. Uh, and as CMS says over and over, kind of you know, duplicating what we say is that all these things, all the actions of the facility, the policies of the facility are supposed to be centered on the resident. And how, what does that mean? How is it implemented? Well, here you can see how it's implemented. These are things that CMS is directing us, directing the state surveyors, the inspectors, to be looking at. So um, it prohibits staff to resident abuse of any type. And a couple really interesting points here. I thought, uh, you know, of course, that makes you know that makes sense, and it's logical that any staff to resident abuse would be inappropriate and would be a violation of residents' rights to be free from abuse, neglect, and exploitation. However, I want to include some of the language here, or talk about some of the language here that CMS specifically talks about. Nursing homes, they, this is their statement again, have diverse populations, including, among others, residents with dementia, mental disorders, intellectual disabilities, ethnic cultural differences, speech-language challenges, and generational differences. When a nursing home accepts a resident for admission, the facility assumes the responsibility of ensuring the safety and well-being of that resident. Uh, I, I just, it's just so important because it's, it's so easy, I think, to get caught up into nursing homes saying, well, um, you know, we didn't expect that this was going to happen, even if that thing that was going to happen was a natural progression 
of say the resident's um, dementia or the resident's Parkinson's disease, uh, et cetera. No, facility accepts and retains a resident. They are assuming responsibility for ensuring that resident's safety and well-being. It is the facility's responsibility to ensure that all staff are trained and knowledgeable in how to react and respond appropriately to resident behavior. All staff are expected to be in control of their own behavior and to behave professionally and should appropriately understand how to work within, with the nursing home population. Lastly, a facility cannot disown the acts of staff. Um, for instance, in regard to striking a combative resident, it is not acceptable for an employee to claim that his or her action was a reflex or a knee-jerk reaction and was not intended to cause harm to the resident. Retaliation by staff is abuse regardless of whether harm was intended and must be cited by the state agency. So it's something for you to remember also, it's clearly a violation as CMS is saying it must be cited. And if you're seeing instances or you're talking, because as, as we've talked about before, the state surveyors are, are supposed to be talking to family members, they're supposed to be talking to residents. I understand that there is not a lot of inspections going on now, but if you are filing a complaint where you think your resident has been abused, um, uh, these are things to discuss with the complainant, with, excuse me, with the, uh, with the survey agency when you make that complaint or if you make it with the, your state Medicaid for a control unit, et cetera, that this is just an important thing to understand. It doesn't matter if it was a reflex action or knee-jerk reaction, et cetera. That is not an excuse ever. I also want to take a moment to talk about resident-to-resident abuse, which is also prohibited Again, nursing homes take responsibility for protecting their residents and also for only accepting residents for whom they can provide safety and appropriate care. So I'm just going to go to the uh, first paragraph here. This is the uh, second sentence. I just want to mention, again, this is in italics, when investigating an allegation of abuse between residents, the surveyor should not automatically assume that abuse did not occur, especially in cases where there is mental disorder or cognitive impairment. Having a mental disorder or cognitive impairment does not automatically preclude a resident from engaging in deliberate or non-accidental actions. And as I note here, there's a very specific meaning about what willful means. Too often we hear providers say, oh, they didn't mean to do it, meaning that, um, that they didn't mean to cause hurt or pain. But that's not what willful means. What willful means is that the individual's action was deliberate, not inadvertent or accidental, regardless of whether the individual intended to inflict injury or harm. And here they give an example. An example of a deliberate, willful action would be a cognitively impaired resident who strikes out at a resident within his or her reach. Uh, that would be deliberate. What would not be deliberate is a resident who has a neurological disease, such as Parkinson's, and who has involuntary movements, such as a muscle spasm, twitching, et cetera, and his or her body movements impact a resident who is nearby. So I hope that is clear because I think it's so important. Again, we have, as I'll show in, in a slide or two, we have fact sheets on this, so you don't have to remember it, you don't have to write it down, et cetera. Um, the, um, a little bit more about resident resident abuse. If it is determined that the action was not willful, was not a deliberate action, the, it is expected that the state surveyor will investigate whether the facility is in compliance 
with the requirement to maintain an environment as free of accident hazards as possible and that each resident is receiving adequate supervision. So again, there is just a lot of layers to, the, to these requirements, a lot of protections for residents that we have a right to expect to be in place. Again, I know a lot of these are especially challenging now since we're not going into facilities, we're not able to take part in, in the surveys to the extent that and surveys aren't really happening at all uh, at this point except under very limited circumstances. But uh, I thought it was important just to really, I wanted to plug in today that these things are not acceptable and that there are pretty um, high standards in terms of the resident protections and what the, is expected of the facility to one, take responsibility for the actions of both staff and of residents and that they, by taking responsibility, meaning that they have to um, make sure that there are effective uh, precautions in place to ensure that residents are free from abuse and neglect. I want to briefly talk about cracking down on crimes against nursing home residents. This was a, uh, a uh, has long been a big issue. A lot of the things we talk about, especially when we talk about abuse or really serious neglect, is in fact a crime uh, under you know federal law and under state law. Uh, so I just wanted to quickly mention that there were um, requirements that were put in place under the Affordable Care Act in 2010, also known as Obamacare, that amped up, as you can see at the bottom here, the um, fines that a individual worker including administrative staff can face if there is a crime in their facility, or I should say if there's suspicion of a crime, they have a suspicion of a crime or should have suspicion of a crime taking place in there against a resident and they have not reported it within two hours if the act or the incident resulted in physical injury to a resident or otherwise, otherwise excuse me, within a 24-hour period. So they, that is, this is new or was new 10 years ago under the Affordable Care Act. Unfortunately, it's something we still are facing enormous challenges in getting implemented. But if we know about it and if we have the resources, hopefully we can change that. And I thought this was one of the most important provisions in the Affordable Care Act at the time and something which, which we lobbied for because uh, so much abuse and neglect takes place in a nursing home and no one, re no one ever reports it. No one sees it as being... A, uh, or identifies it too often as being a serious problem as impacting residents. And here, you know, hopefully, you know, we all see that this, this is important. It does impact residents and that facility staff, including care staff again, uh, contractors, administrative staff, owners, et cetera, all have a duty when they are alerted to or see something that is, uh, would indicate a reasonable suspicion that there is a crime against the resident. What we did is we broke this down a little bit so you can see on the left-hand side of this slide what the requirements are in terms of reporting a crime and on the right-hand side what are reporting requirements in terms of reporting violations of abuse, neglect, uh, or exploitation or mistreatment under the federal rules. There's certainly overlap here and something, if there is overlap, if it counts as both abuse and a, and a potential crime, for instance, then that should be reported, you know, for both the reporting requirements, not just one or the other. Um, this is the fact sheet, as I mentioned before, uh, as we've talked about in these programs in the past, for every single um, 
uh, every single resident right or resident protection that we focus on, we um, we always do, you know, or try to always do a fact sheet. They're almost always limited to two pages, as you can see here, that you're free to print out and take with you. And we have some of the key definitions of what is abuse, what is neglect, um, the federal guidelines, uh, the elements of non-compliance that we talked about today. So, and what are the excuse me, what are the duty to report requirements, as you can see on the right-hand side. Uh, just some basic, clear, hopefully, information that you can use to support your advocacy to share with residents and families um, and with your you know, other ombudsmen and ombudsmen volunteers uh, and advocates, et cetera. And we're going to be certainly be doing more and more on this, but I wanted to, um, you know, I wanted to have this program today, of course, to talk about what residents are facing, uh, to really plug in that these residents' rights have not been eliminated, they have not been relaxed at this time period. If, uh, as the saying goes, if you see something or if you hear something, say something. I know personally, uh, and I know I've been a family member, uh, and I know from the work we do and the people that I speak to every day how frustrating and how sometimes terrifying it has been for, uh, for residents and for families and for ombudsmen and advocates over the last several months. Uh, and I really feel like this is, you know, a good way to kind of turn the tide on this, um, to get at the, the really serious neglect and the abuse um, that, it, that is going on in facilities and it needs to be stopped as swiftly and as strongly as possible. I'm just going to show a couple of the pages on our website here. So here's the Learning Center. Eric has been um, doing some updates to the website, so we're trying to clean it up a little bit. Um, but you can see here under the Learning Center, we have on the right-hand side the sign-up for LTC News. I strongly recommend you do that if you're not already on our list because our future webinars, uh, we're going to be, as I mentioned before, moving to the Zoom platform, and so it'll be a new way of signing in. If you want to hear about the news, we don't sell our list. We don't sell names of anyone. We keep it to ourselves. So if you want to get uh, news and alerts as you're going forward, including for future programs, please do that. Fact sheets are available here. We have other handouts, webinars. As Eric said, we have both the webinar uh, recordings and the podcasts. And we have shorter podcasts, which are really interesting and uh, entertaining as well, as well as these webinars are also podcasts, so you could just listen to them if that would be useful. But uh, what I wanted to focus on right now is we have the um, forms and tools for resident-centered advocacy, and we have the Abuse, Neglect, and Crime Reporting Center, which I think is our next page. Yes. So this is, here we have a lot of resources. We actually are updating this whenever we find something useful. This is the report that I mentioned earlier on about addressing abuse, neglect, and suspicion of crime against nursing home residents that we did last March, March of 2019. But on the buttons here, we have a link to all the state agency contacts and complaint forms for the state departments of health. We have a link to the state Medicaid fraud control units, so you can contact, you can file a complaint about resident abuse or neglect to the Medicaid fraud control unit in your state. Um, we have um, some easy information, the definitions of nursing home abuse, neglect, and crime, a form for investigating resident injuries or suspicion of crime to make it as easy as possible. Uh, we have other forms and tools for resident-centered advocacy. We have a brief memo for law enforcement, which we have shared with some law enforcement entities in our area, but which you're welcome to share in your area as well. 
we really want to let the local police know, let local EMT know what is going on, and that residents, you know, that that, that residents deserve and have the same rights as anyone else does in terms of being free from abuse and neglect, and the right to to have access to uh, safety and to law enforcement. And then we just added at the bottom the ABA, it's American Bar Association Abuse Definitions and State Laws. It's the last tab. I just actually added that yesterday. I came across it online. So that's it. I'm going to thank you for joining us today. Our next program will be on July 21st at 1 p.m. I'm sorry we went a little bit over. We had some technical difficulties at the start. Uh, hopefully we won't in the future with our new platform. But again, thanks so much for joining us. Our next program, as I mentioned before, is going to be a focus on COVID-19 from facility visitation to sufficient staffing and beyond. We'll talk about some of the developments, both in terms of the policy issues that we've been working on in the past few months um, on Capitol Hill, as well as uh, you know, what we're seeing and what we're hearing on the ground and how those things can be addressed. If you have any issues that you would uh, like to raise with us in this regard, things you're seeing, we have a Tell My Story form on, in the Action Center of our website. Please, um, you know, if, if you want to just tell a brief story, it makes such a difference. If you're willing to talk to the press about what has gone on for you or your family member, please let me know because um, you could email feedback at ltccc.org. Uh, or you can uh, contact us via our Facebook page or um, by using the Tell My Story form. Uh, and then lastly, I'm going to open it up for Q&A if anyone uh, has any. But for ombudsmen in New York State, we do um, provide credits for ombudsmen volunteers. Uh, we'd be happy to do this for ombudsmen in other states as well. Just send us an email at info at ltccc.org. But this um, SurveyMonkey link will take you to a very short um, survey um, just to make sure that you actually were here for the program, and then we will let the ombudsman supervisor know. And lastly, for family members in New York State, oh, uh, okay, thank you. Um, there's the Alliance of New York Family Councils, which we're uh, proud to be involved with, www.anyfc.org. And I almost forgot, we also are, have started to, um, we started a program that we want to help family members to connect via uh, via Zoom or freeconferencecall.com, et cetera, and to provide you with technical assistance. So Eric and I are going to be working on that. If you're interested in help with hosting a family council meeting or a resident council meeting, if we have any residents on, uh, we know we get more families. Uh, or if you're an ombudsman, you could certainly please let families that you speak to know about this. I think it's so important for families to organize at this time. There may be some time before we can have group, you know, even visitors in facilities, um, as no matter to have groups coming together in facilities. So we will do this for you for free. Um, we um, just let us know, give send feedback at ltccc.org. Just say you're a family member or a resident, and we'd be happy to set up a um, either a Zoom program for you or a free conference call to give you some technical assistance, et cetera. So thank you very much. And without further ado, if you have any questions or comments, Sarah, I don't know if anything came in. Um, so there's or... a, a couple comments. Okay, um, thanks, Eric. Michelle uh, <laughs> asked, with the regulatory agency only responding to infection control or abuse complaints with actual harm facilities uh, have no oversight and no incentive to provide necessary care. We can advocate, but when our concerns are met with facility denial or apathy, 
do you have any suggestions on how we advocate successfully? Yeah, and I, as I you know as I hope you know it was clear in what I was talking about. I know it's it's always challenging, and it's extremely challenging now when we can't go in, the Amundsen aren't going in, are not able to go in. The state surveyors, as you noted, are going in just on an extremely limited basis. Uh, I always think that a uh, that issuing a complaint is important, although I understand that we don't always expect it to have a um, a good outcome. It's important to get on the record. You can complain, as I mentioned before, to the uh, Medicaid fraud control unit. They're generally housed in the Attorney General's office. We have the links to those um, on our on our website. Every every Medicaid fraud control unit, and they exist in every single state now, has a patient abuse and neglect um, hotline or complaint form that you can use. And I think, in some ways, that can be even more valuable. They don't generally go in, you know, they, they can't investigate every complaint, frankly, but they tend to have a stronger investment, excuse me, stronger investigation protocols than do the State Department of Health, and they generally share information, as I understand it, with the State Department of Health, so they can forward, if they, if they can't handle the situation for some reason, they can either relate it to the Department of Health, and I think that could be more meaningful maybe than to the state than if it comes from a family member, less easy to ignore. Um, and uh, they could also go to law enforcement. You can certainly go to law enforcement if you're, if you're concerned about your, the well-being of your resident to contact the local police or contact the local um, EMT, emergency medical technician ser you know, service in your community. It's something that we've been talking about a lot with, with um, government officials about utilizing that. And I would say, uh, lastly, but, but not least, is making a phone call to your state legislator or to your congressional office, or both, because they also can sometimes have more sway with either an individual facility or with the state health department than a, an individual family member can. And then lastly, as I was just saying, joining together with other families, connecting with them. Uh, again, we'd be happy to facilitate your having private meetings, uh, but you can, you know, put out connections or try to put out feelers on Facebook, et cetera. Um, but, you know, together, I think that we can work to make that uh, to support families. And if you come together as a family council or as a group of families, which in essence is a family council, your voice is much stronger. Uh, and it makes it much harder for facilities or, or the state to ignore it. Thanks, Eric. Uh, were there any other comments or questions? Charles said he has some questions. Charles, okay. can you unmute yourself? He didn't. I think uh, I think Richard might have to unmute him. Oh. Um, I don't, I was able to unmute myself. Okay. So. Yeah. So it's so on the bottom Charles, left. Yes. There's a uh, Charles on the bottom left. There's a. Uh, button that says it looks like a microphone if you click that it'll unmute yourself uh, if not, and if we can't forget that we can you can always uh, email uh, at uh, info at LTCCC. Uh, okay I, I, I think I figured it out I'm on a uh, telephone yeah. I'm not on the computer yeah. oh, okay so you can hear me now okay yeah yes. hi okay again thanks for a really helpful presentation um, a couple of questions uh, one is you touched on the uh, stimulus checks um, what happens if uh, a resident stimulus check takes the resident over the 
approximately $15,000 Medicaid resource limit. My understanding, and I think that the Center for Elder Law and Justice sheet speaks to this, but my understanding uh-huh. is it doesn't count as income. So it's not, oh, okay. yeah, so, yeah so, so it's really separate. And, and, and facilities can't use it to, like, pay down something that's not appropriate. I mean, if the, you know, if the resident wants to, to do that, that, that's the resident's prerogative. But we need to be obviously very careful that, that they don't use undue influence in that regard. But, yeah, it's, it really is the, the resident's money, and it's kind of, like as, as I understand it, it's essentially free money. I mean, it's a um, yeah. But it, yeah. but the question is not about income; it's about resource. So, if 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 it takes the resident over the resource limit that Medicaid imposes, is that an issue, or can can they go over the? I think what is it like fifteen thousand dollars now resource limit? Um, I I don't know exactly, but I think yeah. as I, what I was trying to say, and I'm sorry if I didn't say it artfully, is that. Is that it doesn't count yeah. like it doesn't count as that. It's kind of you know like a, oh, just okay. a thing on its own, yeah. And that that's my so understanding. It's totally separate. Okay, great. Yes. Great. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Uh, sure. Other question is you were talking about you know, resident on resident abuse. I had a case where a resident was uh, inappropriately touching uh, female residents and staff. Had dementia. They facility try hard to talk to the family about it. Talk to the resident about it. But he he had uh, he had dementia, so it was very hard to control him, uh, short of physically restraining. What, what then are the facility's uh, obligations in, in in that regard? Well, there there are a, um, and you know I don't I don't want to speak beyond my expertise at all, obviously. But um, there, I know that this is an issue that is you know recurring. That sometimes people who have dementia will act sexually inappropriate. Um, it's the facility's responsibility to, uh, obviously, as I was saying, to to uh, ensure the safety of other residents. And there are things that can be done, like redirecting residents. Yeah. There's different protocols for for doing that. They tried that. that. <laughs> yeah. they, did they really? Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, yeah. sometimes. But I, I think um, you know. I want to obviously. I want to be fair, and I'm not there to say what they what they did or not. But sometimes. As you know, Charles, um, Charles is a wonderful advocate uh, and friend of LTCCC um, in New York. You, you know that sometimes they say they do something, but they really haven't done very much. Um, mm-hmm. And so this is, and that's why I was cautious about saying I'm not not an expert in this area. But there are, and and you know, there's a lot of I think materials and resources out there for you know effectively redirecting and safeguarding. And if someone is a, you know, it, it, you know, I don't want to see someone getting kicked out of a facility. And again, I'm not a, I'm not there. But you know, if they really are a menace and absolutely nothing can be done, then essentially they they can't safely care for that resident. You know, and again, I want to be careful. I don't want people, you know, that there has to be a lot, you know, that a facility does before it says you know, we can no longer care for you. But um, and and this is in. In particular, I've seen you know overused and abused by facilities. So I want to be especially cautious. But a facility, you know, can you know, for instance, go allow someone to go around uh, who um, is you know is raping people or or sexually you know, molesting them. That's obviously not acceptable. So um, they have to take really strong steps. Um, and uh, again, you know, there are professionals that, that are well beyond me in this regard. Who could probably speak better to that? I'm sure that there's written things as well. 
Okay, thank you. Uh, can I yeah, I'm sorry. One more? Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Governor Cuomo today announced a relaxation on visitation restrictions to hospitals. So does that bode well for nursing homes? Uh, do you think that that might then uh, point in an in a optimistic direction for us as well? Yes, yes, and, and, and I do. So I, I think, you know, we're hearing bits and pieces from from uh, of some states that are opening up, and I'm talking about nursing homes, uh, like for outside visits, and in, in, in I've heard in a couple of states, and, um, uh, and, and I'm sorry, and, and so we are hearing that, uh, and I think that the move, as you're mentioning, to open up hospitals is certainly a good sign. Uh, so yes, and I think, of course, the nice weather that we're experiencing helps also, that it enables people to open windows or to, you know, go outside, et cetera. So, yeah, I, I, think, okay. I think we are yeah, moving that, in that direction. Yeah. And, of course, that, you know, for anyone on, because, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because the latest online, CMS yeah. guidance uh, right, yeah. made, made it look like it was going to be a long time. Yeah. It's, yeah well, and, and that's one of the issues I mentioned when, I, when Eric handed over to me is that, you know, those things that are just from the feds or just from CMS are, are, regu- are recommendations. There's not really a lot of concrete guidance, and I think – you know, that hasn't helped from the very start in, in how we addressed the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, especially in nursing homes, and it's still not helpful because people are really struggling. Uh, so hopefully we'll be able to talk about this more next month as to what, what you know, states are actually doing to, to open up facilities um, to visitors. Thanks, Charles. Thank you, Richard. Um, I just you. want to um, lastly mention, uh, I see on the chat, that someone uh, had a comment about um, about proving abuse through using a video camera without audio, uh, and that uh, this individual mentions that not every state allows video monitoring. Um, our our position is that you know video monitoring one should be very you know very cautiously undertaken because it really does rob a resident of, of his or her privacy and dignity, and that you know and residents. You know, with dementia, et cetera, have the right as, as well. However, either with the resident's permission or with the, um, you know, or obviously it would be if the resident can't get permission, if in any case it would come from the person who is the resident's legal representative, um, you, it's the resident's home, and you have a right, no matter what the state has come out, you know, for uh, whether or not the state has permitted it, you have a right to film in your home, in, in your you know, your bed. So it has to be undertaken very carefully. There's, there's certainly information on the web about doing it. As this person notes, it cannot be recorded. Uh, it cannot be an audio recording, I, sh- I should say, because the, the resident has uh, roommates. If that roommate has guests, you know, friends or family visiting, um, you know, which normally happens or normally might happen, those people have a right to privacy. So generally speaking, just very quickly, it can't have any audio, and it has to really be focused on the resident's bed. and cannot capture anyone else in the, you know, any other residents or their visitors. Um, that does not, that right to privacy does not apply to staff. So it doesn't, you know, it's fine, of course, and that's generally what you want to catch is if the staff are coming in, if they're actually providing care when they say they are, or if they're being abusive, et cetera. But as far as, as we're concerned, every resident, their home. And they have a right, just like you have a right, to put up a camera in your home um, and film yourself. Um, that resident has the right to put up a camera in, in his or her in her, his or her room. And the um, but again, we would want to you know we, we urge people to do it very cautiously 
and carefully. Uh, with that, I'm going to close for today. Again, apologies for the delay. Please do uh, get back to, you know, please do connect with us. You can go on to our website and, and sign up for the alerts yourself, uh, in which case you'll get invitations to future programs and how to get onto them. And of course, learn as we learn about things. We'll alert them, you to them as well. Uh, if you would like for, to tell your story, please go to the Tell My Story um, a button on our Action Alert Center. And it's in other places as well. And also, we um, welcome the opportunity to help family members uh, and help ombudsmen connect with family members to uh, help them do remote calls or Zoom meetings, uh, et cetera. So shoot us an email, feedback at ltccc.org. Without further ado, I thank you all very much and wish you a good afternoon.